Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Hey church, if you are watching this, it is because either Jesse or I or both could not get off our hills to be able to meet in person this morning at the actual building. Uh, We wanted to make sure there was some way for us to gather online and be able to connect with each other as much as we can online, even from our uh, snow-covered homes. So I have no idea how much snow is gathered around you right now. We're recording this uh, ahead of time. Uh, I have forgotten how uh, camera anxiety works, which is greatly ironic because anxiety is exactly what we want to talk about today. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Lion King one and a half, and I'd ask for a show of hands, but that would obviously be pointless. And I'm guessing it's not very many of you. Some of you are like, what is a one and a half? I know it's weird. Most movie franchises, you movie one, two, three. Uh, Lion King did that as well. I don't remember if there's a Three. There's a two. There's a live action one. Really should have done more research. There's a Lion King one and a half. Lion King one and a half is Lion King one, the cartoon version, just told from the perspective of Timon and Pumbaa. And if you don't know who Timon and Pumbaa are, that is fine. I just feel a little sad for the last 30 years of your life that you don't know who Timon and Pumbaa are. But Timon and Pumbaa are a meerkat and a warthog and and. I was going to say that's all you need to know about it, but it's not quite, which is why there's a whole backstory to these two characters. Specifically, it focuses in a lot on Timon's upbringing in a meerkat colony. I also don't know if that's the right name for a colony. Maybe I should stop it. Never mind. We'll just keep going. Meerkat colony, where part of the shtick is if you've ever seen meerkats in the actual real life wild, they're always poking their heads up and looking around and sniffing to see if there's any danger on the wind. And they really play that up in this movie. So the whole point of the colony is for them to all keep each other safe uh, by uh, being on guard at all times. And, And so they even had this little mantra that they did with it, that they would sniff, flinch, scurry. So you'd sniff to see if there's any danger in the wind. You would flinch just in case the danger was right on top of you. And then if it was not, or if there was danger coming, you would scurry. So you would sniff, you would flinch, you would scurry a little bit, sniff, flinch, scurry a little bit. Or again, if danger was coming, you would scurry a lot and run away. It leads to a very funny, to me at least, line that we've quoted more in my family in the last however many years than I would like to admit, um, that uh, one meerkat gets run over by something and says, I flinched when I should have scurried. Now look, my anxious soul feels this movie and this mantra. I just, I get it. You gotta check if danger is coming, flinch just in case it's right on top of you, and be ready to run away and escape at any given moment. Uh, The original Lion King, maybe most of you are more familiar with, was not based on overcoming anxiety and fear, but actually based on overcoming anger and bitterness and pride. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with the Lion King movies at at all, um, make yourself familiar with them. But uh, maybe you're more familiar with, with Hamlet? Uh, Lion King is essentially just an animated anthropomorphic hamlet um, of lions and other wild creatures on the plains of Africa. A, a brother wants to be king and is willing to kill to make that happen. In general, just a bit. So Lion King one and a half, 
characters have to overcome their anxiety and fear to win the day. Regular, plain old, everybody's seen it except maybe you. Lion King, characters have to overcome anger, bitterness, and the anger and bitterness of others in order to win the day. Anxiety and anger. Okay, now I want to move from a cartoon about Africa to real-life pastor in Australia. Okay? Mark Sayers is a pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's also a cultural observer and podcaster, and he said recently on uh, his podcast, Rebuilders, that he believes we are moving in the Western world, Western society, so America, Canada, Europe, Australia, that we're moving from an age of anxiety to an age of anger. Age of anxiety to an age of anger. And I gotta be honest, if we're not already kind of in the age of anger, that makes me a little anxious. Feels like we got plenty of anger going on already, but here's what he's uh, observing. The last decade, he says, has been predominantly marked by worry. People worrying about how fast the world is changing, or maybe we don't like the changes that are happening, or maybe we just need to get more worried about the problems in the world so that we can desire the right changes. Just anecdotally, I've noticed in my own life that there are certain groups of people where it feels like if I'm not worried and anxious, that that must mean I don't care. That somehow my level of anxiety equals my level of compassion or concern. And while normally, to be a little stereotypical, I suppose, when I think of people who are worried about the world changing and, and not really wanting it to, I think of people who are older. My experience over the last, whatever, five or 10 years, like when I think about people who've said, boy, you're not worried enough, do you even care? I'm actually thinking about people who are, are younger than me. In some way, it feels like in different camps, being anxious has been sort of this badge of honor, particularly when talking about the future of the world or the future of our country. And Sayers says that the, if that's marked the last, whatever, seven, eight, ten years, the rest of this decade, he says, will be marked predominantly by anger and protest. And as evidence, he points to the fact that approval ratings of government leaders across the Western world are at near or at all-time lows. This isn't just America being dissatisfied with America's leaders. This is Western countries across the board, almost universally experiencing near all-time lows in leader approval in polls. He says people are disillusioned. They're dissatisfied. They're angry. And their anxiety that they've been experiencing is flowing into anger. And it seems to me that if Sayers is right, whereas over the last decade, maybe I would feel some judgment from others if I wasn't anxious enough, 
that over the next decade, it may be that I will be judged as uncompassionate, uncaring, unloving if I'm not angry enough. Like somehow I need to be more bitter, more protesting in order to be more compassionate. Some of those same themes and language certainly seem to crop up 2020, 2021. That if I really cared, or maybe I'm just ignorant, maybe I just don't understand. So if I really understood or if I really cared, I would be more anxious. I would be angrier about the state of things. But Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church and he says this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And a little later in the same chapter, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. We can follow the pattern that this world is moving in of anxiety and anger, but the early church leaders and teachers we can see throughout the New Testament were really concerned about making sure people understood that we are actually foreigners in this world, that those who have said, I'm following Jesus with my life, I'm not following the ways of the world anymore. I am following the ways of the kingdom of heaven. And that's going to look different. We're going to see differently. We're going to live differently. We're going to fight differently because this world is not ultimately our home. In Ephesians 6, we read Paul write to the Ephesians church, verse 12. We read this last week. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul then goes on to tell them how to be armed and prepared for that fight. Say, look, the, the world is in a spiritual fight that they don't even know that they're in, but we need to know that that's the fight that we are actually in. So we don't want to get dragged into the fights of the world, but actually be ready and equipped for the fight we are actually in. And Paul reminds them then, and we want to remind each other in this season of some practices and habits of how we follow Jesus every day. Last week, we talked about the importance of speaking and sharing the truth, that what we share with the people around us online or in person needs to be true. And the analogy that Paul used, because he's building this analogy of the armor of God, and he, he uses the armor of a Roman soldier to identify each piece of this, but he starts with the belt of truth, which normally you would think you put a belt on last. So you'd refer to it last because it's the thing that holds everything together. But he starts there because it is so important that everything that comes after it has to be based in truth. All the other practices and habits need to be based in a truth or it all falls apart. And one of the things that it holds together is it holds together the breastplate or the armor, the, the chest protector of righteousness. We talked about righteousness. We defined it as lining our lives up with the way God has prescribed humans to act and interact. 
And in doing that, in, in living with God's prescription of, of laws, rules, directions, whatever, uh, we, when, when we base that in, in truth, it makes for a better community and for more loving people. Paul then moves on to the next element of his armor analogy in verse 15. He says, For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. We're talking about standing firm. We're talking about being prepared. And Paul says, look, if you're going to stand firm, you've got to be wearing the right shoes. And he says, it is the shoes of peace that comes from the good news. The Christ follower is asked to carry peace into the world. So our question then really is, as Christ followers, in a time defined by anxiety and anger, how do we carry peace? In a time defined by anxiety and anger, how do we carry peace? I think anxiety and anger are really defined as a lack of peace. Peace can have a bunch of different definitions, and I think most of them are okay-ish. So just to paint a definition of peace in a really broad category, peace is the sense that you're okay, even when your circumstances aren't. Peace is a sense of wholeness in the midst of a broken world. Peace is the sense that you're okay, even when your circumstances aren't. If the good news that we have heard and believed is supposed to bring peace, how do we bring that peace into angry and anxious circumstances and situations and relationships? Uh, to answer that, I want to talk briefly about what steals our peace, how that moves us as people, and how we carry this good news into this particular cultural moment that we're in. So first, what steals our peace? This is not an exhaustive list. I, I tried to paint some big categories. I probably missed something, but I think we'll all get the idea here. What, what steals our peace? The, the first thing I think of is unwanted changes. Unwanted changes. Something is changing. We don't want it to. Societally, we think, see things changing really rapidly, and we don't want them to, we don't like it. Whatever values, technology, priorities, it makes us anxious. We're lacking peace. Personally, I am terrible at adapting to new technology. The only reason I have technology that works at all is because my wife is a genius and understands those things. I am easily agitated and irritated when it doesn't work perfectly. It's not, it's not good. You may look around you and feel agitated about the changes that are happening in the world. New generations, new values, etc. Of course, this also happens in our day-to-day -day lives. Your spouse may have changed their priorities over time. You may lose your job. Somebody may walk out. These are unwanted changes. 
they steal, grasp at, tear at our peace. They make us uncertain. They make our brains speed up and spin out. Make us constantly on the lookout for some sort of solution to our anxiety. One thing that steals peace is unwanted changes. Another one is a lack of clarity. When we look to the next steps, when we look into the future, when we look into an upcoming season, we're, we're just not clear on what's supposed to happen next. Sometimes I think parenting creates so much anxiety because we're just not sure what to do or how to approach the next problem on the list. We look around at our circumstances and we're just not sure how it's all going to work out, how the bills are going to get paid, how the decisions are going to get made. This is most acute in situations that are new or are emergency situations. Again, we can think back to 2020 and the collective anxiety of all that, that I'm still not sure we really understand the impact of all of that. In this situation that we'd never been through before. And the anxieties that came with it. Uh, it happens a lot in future planning. We, we're asking teenagers to tell us what they want to do with the rest of our, what, with the rest of their lives by the time they're 18 years old. And for some, that works great because they've known what they wanted to do with their life since they were six. But I know people in their 40s and 50s who are like, I don't know what I'm going to do with the next 40 years. Like, I just don't have that kind of clarity on my life. And when we are asking for clarity where there isn't any. It creates anxiety in the people around us. It creates anxiety in those high schoolers who don't know what they're going to do with the next 40 years of their life. They don't know what they're, ne- they don't know what they're going to do with the next 40 minutes of their life, okay? So that lack of clarity, when we feel like we're supposed to have it, I should know what to do here, steals at our peace, creates some anxiety in us. It, in religious circles, in Christian culture, a lot of times I think we deal with this lack of clarity by saying, okay, I'm going to pray about it. And what we mean is we're going to go to God seeking God's wisdom and God's answers, directions for the next step. And I think that's a very good and biblical thing to do. It is interesting to me that as I think through the stories of scripture, where people demanded from God some sort of sign or direction, some next step before they were willing to move forward, that they needed that sense of clarity. That God did often give it to people, but the stories that come to mind first for me, it seems to be given to people as a concession to their doubt and their fear, not as the way God actually wanted them to choose. I wonder how much we go into those times of prayer and we're not actually seeking God, we're seeking information. God, you are an all-knowing God. I don't know, but you do. So will you please download information into my brain so that I can feel more confident and comfortable in the decision that I have to make here? 
that rather than seeking the comfort of a deeper relationship with God, we are seeking the comfort of clarity of information. Almost like we want to be able to go to God in prayer. And if we say the right things, if we behave the right way, if we come with the right attitude, that God will, as like a, a vending machine, give us the information and the answers that we want so that we can get up from our time of prayer and walk on with our lives. And we don't even really have to take the next steps with Jesus because he's already told us what the next steps are going to be. We love that kind of clarity. And when we have clarity, we feel more comfortable, more confident. We call that peace. I wonder how often the peace we're experiencing is the clarity that we were seeking, not the presence of God. Should we seek God for clarity? Absolutely. I want to be a person who leads my life, who leads my family, who leads the church, seeking God for wisdom. We will continue to, to pray in that way. But we have a tendency to choose clarity over a faith-filled step because it feels better. Like we'll just sit here until we get the right answer. So we know what to do next as opposed to going to God as, God, I, I don't know what to do next. And this feels really uncomfortable. And I'm asking for the comfort of your presence. I'm asking for the comfort of your peace. Too often we go, God, I'm uncomfortable with what the next steps are here and I'm asking for the comfort of answers, please for clear directions and burning bushes. I know that's what rises up in my heart when, when there's a lack of clarity and I don't know what to do. Uh, you're gonna see these first two things, these first two categories of, of things that steal our peace show up a lot in the political discourse over the next few months, I can promise you, because they always do, uh, for unwanted changes. Uh, on the conservative side, when it comes to talking about changes. On, on the conservative side, you're going to hear candidates talk about uh, all these changes that are happening in the world that we don't really want and how the world is going to hell. And on the progressive side, you're going to hear candidates talk about how the world isn't changing fast enough and we're all going to be dead in 30 years. And then once they have stirred up enough anxiety in their base, they are going to promise clarity of answers. Vote for me and I will make it all okay. Here's exactly how I will fix the problem. Now, can they promise clarity? No, there is no position in our government that can on its own provide clarity of future direction, not without a lot of cooperation with other branches of government. But they will promise it anyway, because our track record is that the candidate who stirs up the most anxiety and promises the most clarity gets the most votes. If that feels like we're being manipulated, maybe we are.
promise that the political victory for them will bring peace to us because of the clarity of the answers that they offer us. More on that in a moment, but first I, I want to get to the last two categories here, the things that steal our peace. Uh, we'll call this next one unrighteousness. And this is unrighteousness of our own lives or, or unrighteousness in others. Again, we talked about righteousness last week. It's lining up with God's prescription for our lives. It's the, the laws and the directions on, on how humans act and interact. And when we step outside of that or the people around us step outside of that, a pain happens and we lose our peace. So you may not know God's clear direction for any one particular decision, but God has been pretty clear on how we are supposed to act and interact. I mean, Jesus boils it down really simply. Love God, love others, love self. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we step outside of that, it feels like a lack of peace because we're not living in the way that God has designed us to live. When the people around us step outside of that, it creates a lack of peace for them. It often creates pain for us. Often our own bad choices create pain for us. Pain, unforgiveness, relational instability, these things can be peace stealers. And then one of the great pains and peace stealers in our lives is death. Fear of death or the reality of it. Death of a loved one, of a marriage, of a dream. All these in different degrees for different people can, can steal our peace. Death creates anxiety, fear, stirs up our anger. Again, there may be more than just these four categories of unwanted changes and a lack of clarity and, and unrighteousness and death. But I, I think we get the idea. And probably from something in those four categories, you can think of a time that you were anxious or angry because of something that happened. It may even be something going on in your life right now. I want us to see a pattern in how these things affect us as people. And if you have been through a pure desire group or a Genesis group, you are familiar with something called the faster scale. And if you're not, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll uh, talk this through a different way as well. The faster scale is a nice visual representation of how we move in and through things like anxiety and anger. So uh, here's, here's what happens for all of us. Something steals our peace. We lose our priorities. Somebody hurts us. Something steals our peace. And we find ourselves worried. It creates worry and anxiety in us. And the longer we sit in that anxiety, or the more intense that anxiety is, the more we want a solution, which makes total sense. Whatever tension or problem we're experiencing, facing, we want something to solve it, to resolve it. And, and the longer that intensity or the more intense that, or the longer that anxiety, the more intense that anxiety, the, 
the more desperate we become for a solution. If you've ever seen a parent with a really sick child, the longer their child is sick or the more intense that sickness, the more desperate they become for a solution. So again, it makes total sense. And it's the stuff movies are made out of. In faster scale language, we call it speeding up. You move from anxiety to speeding up. But really, it is just a growing desperation for a solution. Something to resolve that tension. Growing desperation for some way out. Some, if not a solution, some escape. And then when no solution comes, or when the solutions we were counting on don't work or don't work fast enough, we get angry. So anxiety leads to a growing desperation, leads to anger. Anxiety leads to a growing desperation, which leads to anger. A really silly example of this. If you've ever been sitting in traffic, traffic jam, cars aren't really moving or they're not moving very fast, and you realize that your bladder is full, and you think, you know what, uh, I can get off the next exit, or my exit's just just two exits down. I can do this. I can do this. And then for whatever reason, uh, the uh, traffic is going slower than you thought it would. Or now it's gone from crawling to not moving at all. Or uh, what you thought was just two exits turns into four. Whatever it may be. Um, and and uh, as those things are going not your way, then there is a growing anxiety in you. And, and as your uh, bladder gets more uh, talkative, then there is a growing desperation for a solution. And suddenly, maybe you were having a really great day. And so the people who are doing all the dumb things in the traffic and cutting people off and zipping up ahead on the side or whatever, you're, you're just like, hey, Okay, that sure, fine. But now, with a growing desperation for a solution, now you find yourself getting more and more angry. A ridiculous example. But if you've been there, if you know, you know. That's all I'm saying. This happens in our relationships, in our circumstances. Something alerts us to be concerned. The longer we sit with that concern, the more we have a growing desperation for a solution. And when the solutions don't work or work fast enough, we get angry. So let's walk through this pattern first for how we respond personally and then for maybe how we can respond culturally. Okay. So something threatens your sense of peace and you get anxious. Here's a reality I want us to recognize. Anxiety reveals our dependence. Anxiety reveals our dependence. So if you're getting anxious about some change that's happening, well, that reveals that you were at least in some part, to some degree, dependent on the consistency of that thing or of that situation. Okay? 
if somebody decides to walk out of your life. The anxiety that you feel around that shows that there is some amount, to some degree, of dependence on that person. And I want to say, um, yeah, yes, of course. Of course there was. Like, I'm not condemning those reactions at, at all, so I, I hope you don't hear that. Like that, of, of course. Like, our heart is attached to these things, these people. Like, and in, in many cases, it should be. That's, that's part of how we, we love and engage and interact with the world around us. I'm just asking us to observe ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to observe your worries. What does your anxiety about something? Again, this, this is really complex and I know that because I'm not actually asking us to examine our hurts. I'm asking us to examine our anxieties, maybe a earlier stage in the process of being hurt. Observe the next thing you're worried about. Or maybe there's something on your mind right now. What does that worry reveal about what you depend on? My anxiety around technology, I just hit the microphone, I'm sorry. My anxiety about Technology reveals that I am dependent on technology doing what it's supposed to do because I feel incompetent to fix it. What does your anxiety reveal about what you're dependent on? What does your anxiety reveal about what you've put your hope in. And maybe the most important question, what do you think God has to say to you about your dependence and your hope and who or what you've chosen to put it in? I mean, really, what what is, what is a God of compassion and love, grace and faithfulness? What do you, what do you think he would put his arm around you and say about what your anxiety reveals you depend on or hope in? Okay, so anxiety leads to a growing desperation for solutions, leads to anger. As our anxiety grows, so does our desperation for a solution. Here's the thing, church. Do we believe that Jesus is the solution or not? And I don't mean to be base or crass about that. I just mean to be real direct about the question. 
do we believe that Jesus is the solution or not? As our desperation for a solution grows, are we going to grow in our desperation for Jesus or not? This is, this is my struggle. When I have anxious thoughts, which I have way too many of, am I going to grow more desperate for an escape or for Jesus? Am I going to grow more desperate to fix other people or more desperate for Jesus? Am I going to grow more desperate for a political victory or comfort or praise? Or am I going to grow more desperate for Jesus? Am I going to grow more dependent on Jesus and his peace? Do we think Jesus is the solution or not? I mean... If Mark Sayers, again, that pastor in Australia, if Mark Sayers is right, and we're moving from an age of anxiety to an age of anger, that means we are right in that swing right now as a society where we are growing more desperate for a solution because the things we thought would solve our anxiety aren't solving it. Yeah. Because we're trying to do this without Jesus. Not, not religion, <laughs> not behaving in all the right ways so that we can get God to bless us the way we want him to. If Sayers is right, the world is growing more desperate for a solution, which is a great place for the church to step into and say, oh, do we have a solution for you? In fact, we have the solution for you. We get to take the world the good news that we can have peace in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king. That's the good news that we get to carry. Like, we can tell people that they can try to fix, to manipulate, to escape. But none of those things are actually the solution because what they're really after is they're really after peace. That's what all of us are really after. We, we just want a sense that we're okay even when things are not okay, that, that we can be whole even when the world around us is broken. That's what we're all after. And here's what Jesus promises in John chapter 14. Jesus promises, verse 27. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. It's a peace the world can't give us, but he has. So we don't need to be anxious or afraid. Jesus promises us life, yes. 
and he promises us love and forgiveness. Yes. But the gift that he names is peace. And we get to tell the world that good news. Now, some churches are going to follow right along with this pattern and their anxiety is, is moving into a growing desperation for solutions and it's going to move them into anger. Just right along with the culture. May it never be said of us. But may it be said of us that in this moment of growing desperation, we chose to grow in our desperation for Jesus. That as our anxiety was revealing things to us, we chose to grow in our dependence on Jesus for our peace. That we'll let our desire for solutions grow our desire for more of Jesus. This is a, a silly story, but it's true. I realized a couple months ago that I feel like I'm being a really bad witness to my chiropractor. Like needing to go to a chiropractor because I grew too fast a million years ago and my back hurts, like that's fine. But, but when I go into my chiropractor, I, I'm tight. My whole body is tight because I'm stressed and I'm anxious about things. and. She knows what I do for a living. She knows the message I carry, not just not just up on a stage once a week, but like hopefully with my whole life. And I have this message of peace to bring to her. And, and I would just be bringing peace wrapped in my own anxiety. When we take the good news of Jesus to people, are, are we handing them good news of peace or good news wrapped in our own anxieties or angers? They can find anxiety and anger and a growing desperation for solutions anywhere. Do we really believe? Do I really believe that Jesus is the solution or not? How is that going to play out in my everyday life? Do we really believe that a greater dependence on Jesus will bring us the peace we're looking for? Because that is the good news that we've signed up to carry. We're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but I don't want to just kick it down the road. In the season of Lent, the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to invite you to pray for a greater desperation for Jesus, to pray out of a greater desperation for Jesus, for more dependence on Jesus. And you can do that on your own. We're going to gather once a week to pray that together, to pray out of that desperation together, to aim to grow in our dependence on Jesus and see what God does with that. But if that's stirring in your heart today, please don't wait for some date on a calendar. Like, obviously, start today. 
We're starting this year by talking about habits and practices that we need in order to follow Jesus every day. And part of that is a growing desperation and growing dependence on Jesus. So as a daily practice, how are you going to grow in your dependence on Jesus and his peace? May it be a daily aim for us to grow in our dependence on Jesus and his peace in prayer, through observing your dependence or through your growing desire for a solution, through taking faith-filled steps, even when the next step isn't clear, you're taking faith-filled steps in love because, because Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. Let's let him prove that to us, okay? And we pray for us as we do that. Jesus, would you guide our hearts and bring us your peace that we could stand firm as the winds of anxiety, anger, desperation blow against us and so that we can carry that good news of your peace, your love to all those around us who need it. Jesus, it is in your name that we pray that we depend, that we live our lives. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.